So I uh, am continuing in the book of Ruth, um, and my journey through it has been one that's journeyed through seasons. Um, and without meaning to, the theme of the last two chapters, uh, we're looking at chapter three in case you weren't aware tonight, uh, but the last two chapters I looked at, I've ended up focusing on a particular character and looking at what we learn about them and their character and how that encourages us and our faith and how we are to live out um, in our faith. Uh, and I didn't intend it to be that way, it's just the way it ended up. So chapter one was the winter season. There's a, I typed into a search engine, bleak winter, and that's the picture that came up. Uh, I tried to look, some of them were really cute and like snowy, and I was like, no, 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 the whole point of season one, chapter one, was that Naomi was in a very bleak point in her life. She's displaced due to a famine, her and her family move from Bethlehem to Moab, and then she faces extreme tragedy. She loses her husband and both of her sons. Uh, but she displays uh, her vulnerability, and she doesn't seem to be afraid to do that. She's open and honest about how those experiences um, have left her, and also how it's left her view of God. She feels abandoned by God. But she didn't return home alone. One of her daughter-in-laws called Ruth was right there by her side. Then we entered into chapter two, which was our spring season. And we get introduced to a guy called Boaz. And from the very beginning, we can see that he's going to play an important part. It says, now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So we get a really big hint right at the start, this guy's going to be important. And Ruth happens to go in search of food and provisions for her and her mother-in-law, and she ends up, or as uh, chapter 2 says, as it turned out, she's in Boaz's field. This relative that we hear is going to be important. And he is a man of great generosity. And last time I talked about just how he went above and beyond um, what was expected of him from God in how generous he was towards Ruth and Naomi. And that chapter ends with Naomi seeing hope on the horizon. Spring has come. There is hope uh, to come. And so tonight, chapter three is the summer season. Uh, and I feel like seeing as I focused on Naomi, then I focused on Boaz, it feels only right that I should focus on Ruth, given that the book is called the book of Ruth. So she is going to be the person that we're going to hone in on. Um, and we're going to look at her character, not just in this third chapter, but across the three that we've looked at so far, and what we can learn um, from that. Uh, and uh, summer is a, uh, a time of year when our days are filled with lots of light. I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying the fact that it's a lot lighter for a lot longer. The days are getting warmer um, and will be warm, but also it's, a, it's when nature's in its full bloom, and that is a beautiful thing, and I really do think this chapter looks at that. And for me, the title that came out of this was um, Faith Active in Love. Ruth's character shows her faith active in the way she loves, in particular the way she loves Naomi. So um, throughout all three chapters, although I haven't focused on her, elements of her characters and who she is has been um, there And I remember in, oh gosh, lockdown, I think this was very early on, I did this study in the Book of Ruth with one of my Ignite um, small groups. And I said to them, if you had to sum up 
the book of Ruth, or the character of Ruth in particular, what words would you use to describe her? And the two that came out were loyal and devoted. And that's where I want to start, in that loyalty and the devotion started way back in chapter one. Naomi knew that her daughter-in-laws had a better chance of uh, finding husbands and the security of another marriage and a home if they stayed where they were. And she was desperately trying to get them to stay or she returned. But Ruth was having none of that. And she clung to Naomi and said to her, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law was demonstrated in her determination to remain with her. And she didn't fully know what that cost would be but she knew, I'm staying with you, no matter what, by your side. She is in an incredibly vulnerable place in chapter one, so is Naomi, but Ruth's even more so the minute they enter Bethlehem, back in Naomi's home ground, because now Ruth's gone from being a, a widow, she's a woman without a husband, so she's financially doesn't have that inheritance from her husband, and she doesn't have any heirs, from that marriage, therefore the inheritance is not there, so she's financially vulnerable. She's a woman anyway on her own, so that makes her extra vulnerable. But now she's a foreigner in a land that aren't a big fan of Moabite people, and that's exactly what Ruth is. Now she's a foreigner in a strange land, and she's dependent on the generosity of others. She takes it upon herself to go and find food and provisions for her and her mother-in-law. She's devoted to Naomi. Although I am in a strange land and they're not going to like me, I'm going to take it upon myself to make sure that we are provided for. And fortunately, she finds that in Boaz, who is generous enough not only to allow her in something called gleaning, which just means she can pick up the leftover grain, but he goes beyond and he protects her. When Boaz first sees her in chapter 2, and he asks his overseer, who's that woman? that's in the field, again, we get another insight into how people perceive her character. Because the oversight responds to, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Gleaning leftover grain was back-breaking work, but Ruth did it tirelessly to make sure that she got enough for herself and for her mother-in-law. Worked tirelessly, except for a short rest. Those around Ruth could see her devotion to her mother-in-law. They could see the loyalty that she had, and it's in the way that they talk about her. And even when Boaz talks to Ruth, when she's so shocked as to why on earth are you being that generous to me, he says, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law. It's, it's been, people are talking about what you have sacrificed for the sake of your mother-in-law. Your loyalty and your devotion has been seen by all. And then that brings us to chapter three, and I'm going to ask Grace to come and read that.
One day, <clears throat> one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly and covered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. If he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone would be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you very much. My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, the woman whose woman you have worked with is a relative of ours. Naomi sees an opportunity. A possible answer to a prayer that she actually prayed over both of her daughter-in-laws all the way back in chapter one, where she said to both of them when she was trying to tell them, please stay here, she said, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now she's seen here is the opportunity for Ruth to have an answer to that prayer. She wants Ruth to find that rest, that word home, uh, which I think yeah, in this translation it says home, but in other translations it says rest. It's a place where you'll find security um, in a home through marriage and getting a husband. She wants that for her daughter-in-law. And that comes from this term that's been used a few times called guardian redeemer or family redeemer in some translations. And I'm going to very simply explain because that's not really what I'm going to look at this evening. Uh, spoiler alert, that will be the last one I do. We'll be focusing very much on the guardian redeemer because I think it all comes together in chapter four. But guardian redeemer, redeemer very simply explained, 
uh, was a custom that if a woman's husband died and she had no children, it was the responsibility of sort of the next of kin or the closest relative um, to marry her and produce a child that would be the heir to the late husband. It's his family name and his inheritance that would then be carried on through this marriage with the closest relative. And as it turns out, which we've read, Boaz isn't actually their closest relative, but we don't know that in verse one, or Naomi potentially doesn't know that in verse one. And so she hatches a plan. Uh, the barley and the wheat harvest have come to an end, and now the grain needs separating from the sheaves, which is a process that they would have done that involved just uh, something called a threshing floor, which is just a hard, either stone or hardened earth, where these sheaves would be put down on the floor, and either through cattle or just through beating them, you separate the grain, which is what you want, from the other stuff, which you don't want, and then you would throw it into the, into the air, which is the winnowing part, and the wind would take away the stuff you don't like, uh, and it would go downwind, and then the heavier grain, that good stuff that you really want, would fall to the ground. So this is the process that has been happening, and it would be uh, customary or expected that the owner would sleep on that threshing floor to basically put off thieves. You don't want someone coming and stealing all your hard work and all that you've harvested. So this is uh, the point where Naomi's plan begins. Once Boaz um, is laid down, uh, that's when they, uh, Ruth, sorry, is to go and lie at his feet. Now, it's a bit of a bizarre plan for us as we read it in our culture today. I asked a question that I don't have the answer to. Like, why not just go up to Boaz and be like, so I think you're the closest relative. Can you please marry Ruth? Why not just be that direct? Why wait until night and he's asleep? Uh, and then covering his feet, which is going to naturally wake him up and startle him. Uh, and I don't have the answers to why she did that, but they did. And that was the plan, a bizarre one, uh, as it may be. And in my notes, I found this quite funny. This version said he was startled. Uh, my study Bible had in brackets, it said this when he, oh, no, I've explained that already, said literally he was terrified when he woke up, which I'm not surprised if you went to bed and there was no one near you and you wake up and there's a strange individual at the bottom of your feet, I think anyone would be terrified. Um, I've never had that happen to me, but have you ever experienced when you wake up in a different bed? That, like, if I sleep anywhere that's not my bed, I wake up and for at least a minute, I have no idea where I am, who I am, what day of the week it is, where I'm meant to be, and it's worse if you end up traveling somewhere where there's a um, time difference that really messes with you. So that can make me feel freaked out, just waking up in a, a different bed where I don't know where I am. I can't imagine uh, what must have been going through Boaz's head. Um, but whether there was a better plan and a better way that they could have done this, and whatever Naomi's motivation, every detail of the plan um, from how Ruth is to get ready and present herself. So wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best, best clothes, um, to the way that she's to approach Boaz. So she's to go, uh, although she's uncovering his feet to wake him up, but she stays at his feet, which is a place of humility. Um, she doesn't lie next to him, she lies at his feet. This is all geared to make it very, very clear that Ruth is saying, I want to marry you. No matter how bizarre we think that plan is, every detail is making it clear. And it's a bold plan that comes with huge risks on Ruth's part. One, Ruth is placing herself in an extreme situation of vulnerability. Remember, woman, widow. 
uh, she's putting in a place where she could be taken advantage of. There's a big risk here that Boaz, we're trusting that Boaz isn't going to do that and take advantage of her. Uh, and the second is Boaz could reject her. And this reputation that I've said so far from chapter one and chapter two that she's got as being um, loyal, devoted. Uh, later on in, in chapter three, Boaz says, all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Well, that reputation she has as being a woman of noble character is being put on the line here. If he rejects her and is like, what on earth are you doing? This is not appropriate for you to be here in the middle of the night. So Ruth is taking a huge, huge risk. But she does submit to it. And this is, uh, I looked at the definition for faith. Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. She places complete trust in Naomi and in Naomi's plan and obediently submits to it. She says, I will do what you ask of me. Fortunately, her request to Boaz goes down well. And he responds to her saying, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz is amazed again at Ruth's devotion and her loyalty to Naomi, which he sees in her willingness to put herself and her potential preference to maybe go after younger men, whether they be rich or poor. She puts her potential preference and sets that aside for the sake of Naomi and the family obligations. There was this quote that I read in a book um, that's on Ruth in my preparation, and it said, Ruth has come to learn how important a husband's inheritance and a male heir were to the people of Yahweh in those times, but in particular how important the inheritance of Elimelech and Malon, which is Naomi's son, were to Naomi. So if Ruth had done whatever she wanted and married anyone outside of this next of kin, this close relative, then only she would have benefited from it. She would have found security in a, in a marriage. She's now got a new home and a husband, and hopefully they can have an heir and that inheritance can pass down. That would have benefited Ruth. However, it wouldn't have benefited Naomi. So as she humbly seeks to serve Naomi, she's putting aside what's best for her and making sure that what she does benefits them both. By choosing to go to Boaz and following this plan, she's making sure that it, well, she's doing it because if she marries this guardian redeemer, this close family link, Naomi is the one that's blessed through it because it will be Naomi's son, her heir, the, the child that's produced from this will be that, Naomi's grandchild in that bringing together that redeeming process of what happens. So that's why he's saying this kindness, go back to that verse, is even greater than what you first showed. This loyalty and devotion of you choosing to follow your mother-in-law into a land that's not yours and a people that's not yours, but declaring that these people and your God will be my God that was one level of loyalty and devotion. Now you've gone beyond because you are saying, I'm choosing to be part of the customs and traditions that's going to bless Naomi as well. She's putting herself aside and meeting the needs of her mother-in-law. Ruth is now a member of God's covenant family and is showing her faith active in love. 
Her journey over the last three chapters mirrors what I see happens when we choose to follow Jesus. In declaring, you may have heard these terms, or if you've ever come to baptism, they say, I declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior. When we choose to follow Jesus, when we make that declaration of Jesus being our Lord and our Savior, we are stating our loyalty and devotion to him. We're making that declaration like Ruth made to Naomi. We're saying that to Jesus, where you go, I will go. We place our complete trust, that faith, complete trust in Jesus. And we choose to obediently submit to God, to his plan and his will when we devote ourselves. And when we make that declaration of loyalty and we show that we are devoted to Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. And I nearly fell over when Emily read from Ephesians because... God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. I definitely feel, Emily shared that verse, it's in my preparation, we have not, I have given such little communication, which I do have to apologize to Emily about what I was talking on, and the fact that she's brought that to you and it's in mine, it's definitely for me, whether it's all of us or there's definitely someone here tonight needs to hear that when you accept Jesus in your life and choose to follow him, you devote yourself and you're loyal to him, we are adopted into his family. We get to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, you may be put off by potentially that we're all going to now be family, but we are a part of his family. And being of uh, being a member of that, that family comes with a really important responsibility. Similar to Ruth being a member of her mother-in-law's family, of the, the community of Yahweh. And that responsibility when we come into God's family is to display our faith through the action of love. The Apostle Paul writes to um, a church or churches in Galatia reminding them of this important responsibility. And he says... Is it there? Yes. For in Christ, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Your faith needs to be expressed through your love. And he writes to a church in Corinth in a very uh, popular passage of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13. But uh, the start of that chapter says, If I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. It's quite a powerful passage, that bit. The next bit you may recognize if you've ever been to a wedding, because the next part goes on based to say what love looks like. Now, I've when I looked this up, I thought, uh, yes, love is important. What's that verse about? Like, if I don't have love, did it, Googled it, that came up. And before I'd found this part, I thought, I, need, I probably need to answer the question, but what does love look like if I'm saying it's faith is action in love or, or whatever the title I gave this? If that's the action I need to love, what do I do? And as I was reading this, I was like, oh, look at that. It gives us what love looks like in action. So love is, it's patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. 
It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It isn't selfish. It's not easily angered. It doesn't hold on to grudges or delight in evil, but instead it rejoices. It always protects and trusts. It is hopeful and love perseveres. Love never fails. Quite a powerful and also challenging list. Those things on there. I remember as a teenager, I always thought I was a very patient individual until I learned how to drive. And then I realized I'm not patient and I have terrible road rage, which I very much blame uh, being South African on. Um, if you've ever been to South Africa, you will understand that. But uh, I did think I was patient and then learned how to drive. But anyway, that's a challenge in, in itself, all of those things, patient, kind, not envying. And if we look the bit before, basically it's saying, if I say the right stuff, that first part, and I pray the best sounding prayers, but I don't have love, if I'm impatient or I'm unkind, I'm incredibly envious or boastful or selfish, then to God it just sounds like a repetitive, harsh and out of tune noise. Or if I use the gifts that God has blessed me with, be that prophecy, as the verse suggests, or maybe it's a gift of teaching, a gift of encouraging, or leadership. God gives each and every one of us gifts, and he wants us to use them. If I, we, if I use those gifts, but I don't have love, I am nothing. Whoa. That is quite a challenge there in itself. And if my actions... So we've looked at saying the right stuff, using the gifts that have been given. If my actions are ticking all the God boxes, I'm giving to the poor, I go to church, I'm part of a small group, I read my Bible, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. I can tick all the God boxes, but I don't gain anything without love. I shared this verse last time, and I'm going to share it again because it's important. We love because he first loved us. Jesus calls us to a faith that is active in displaying his character, his character traits. Essentially, all we're doing is reflecting who God is when we love. I looked last time at we're generous because God was generous to us. And the more we reflect God's character, the more that becomes our own character. The more we reflect different bits and we're active in showing love, however that may look for each of us, it starts to become part of our own character. I may be very impatient behind the wheel of my car, but I'm desperately trying not to be so impatient behind the wheel of my car. I don't know if it's working yet. But the more I... Seek to action patience, action love through patience, the more it will become my character. You learn, you take that on. The more I try and reflect that character of God, the more it becomes my character too. And character is so, so important to God. God cares about who we are and how we live rather than just what we do. We love others, whether it be through being patient or kind, not envying, but we can also learn to love others. 
this isn't going to always be easy, and it's not always showing those things to the people that we like or find it easy to. So it's something that we can do, and it's also something that we have to learn to do. And we have help. God didn't just say, do this, and you're on your own. See you later. Uh, he said, I'm sending you a helper. My helper is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guides us, motivates us, and enables us when we can't do it ourselves. When I can't be patient myself, the Holy Spirit can enable me. And it's for the sake of others. It's for the sake of loving others and in joyful response to Christ's redeeming love, which we sang about in all those songs earlier about how Jesus died for us and loves us. We do it for others and we do it in response to Jesus' love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Amen. Now, when I read, there's the list, that out, I wonder if anything stood out to you, if there was a word that you thought, that one keeps my eyes, keep being drawn to it. Because my challenge this week to all of us in the room is if there is a word that is standing out right now to you on that list of what love in action looks like, it might be because God wants to grow you in that. And it's an area where actually we are going to be, you're going to be challenged on. And God says we need to work on this. Being envious or boastful or proud, like that's not what I want for you and that's not the character I want you to be known as so we need to work through this together or that word could be popping out to you because God's saying I know you're going to encounter someone this week that might need that thing might not necessarily be you need to think oh it's only the areas where God's like you need to do this better actually maybe it's kind because you might encounter someone this week where they've had the opposite of that for however long. And you could be the person that makes their week, their month, or even their year, and that's terribly sad if you, a little bit of kindness is the thing that makes someone's year, but you have no idea who we're going to interact with next week. Or sometimes even what's going on with our colleagues or friends. So it could be God wants to grow you in that thing, or it could be he knows you're going to meet someone this week that really needs you to be patient or kind or not easily angered, or not hold grudge, or to be hopeful or protective. And in a minute, um, we're gonna, I'm going to pray over all of us, and we're going to go back to worshipping. It's nice and simple and short this evening. Um, and we'll read through a prayer. But I also recognize, as I was preparing this, actually there might be some of you in this room that are thinking, it's great hearing that God loves me, and I hear it, but none of that connects with me at all. I'd love to experience what you lot harp on about, God loves me, but I just don't feel any of that here. And if that's you, then as much as I want to encourage you to be any of those things this week, because it's good for us to be loving to everybody, but actually take this time tonight to go, here I am, Lord. I want to experience 
in a tangible way what it means to be loved by you. Going back to that, we love because he first loved us. Grasping the bit about us being loved is really important to then motivate us in the action. So it might be for the first time, or you might just be, it could be I grasped that a while ago, but actually I'm really not feeling it right now. And if that's you, I'd ask you to tonight, come to God saying, help me to really experience that I'm loved by you. So if the band want to come up, I'm going to read through the prayer. I'm going to read through it fairly slowly, not at a pace to which we're all going to age by a year by the time I'm finished, but to give you enough time to absorb those words. And in it, it's Chan prayer. Part of that prayer is about us going and loving others this week. But also in there is God, show me how much you love me. So let's pray. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, you are the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you. Help us to know you, that we may truly love you, and so to love you, that we may truly serve you. By your Holy Spirit, bless us with wisdom and revelation so that we may be capable of comprehending with all of God's people the width and length and height and depth of your love. May we know you practically through personal experiences of your amazing and endless love. May we have the richest experience of your presence in our lives, completely filled and flooded with your love. We pray that out of the riches of your glory, we will be strengthened by power through your Holy Spirit. May Jesus Christ dwell in our hearts through a faith which is rooted and securely grounded in love. Loving and all-seeing God, forgive us where we have failed to support one another. Forgive us where we have failed to serve you and where our thoughts and actions have been contrary to your word. Revive us by the power of your love and fill us with the joy of your spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.